Hey, welcome to Gospel Community Sermon Podcast. Thanks for listening in. We hope that uh, you enjoy what you hear and that we handle the word faithfully. We'd invite you, if you have any questions or want to attend a service, to visit www.gcctroy.com. Hey, I wonder if you might uh, kind of rewind the clock with me for a second and turn back to the early 2000s. Uh, for those of us who had kids in the early 2000s, there was these things. They were called Baby Einstein videos. Do you remember this? Uh, Baby Einstein videos were supposed to make your kids a genius. And what it was is these 30-minute clips or 30-minute videos with 30 to 60-second clips uh, of things like a, a vocab. So a ball would bounce across the screen and it would say, ball, ball ball, right? And your kid was going to become the next Einstein or Mozart or whoever else, right? Uh, And what happens is the clips themselves were were set to classical music, and they would introduce vocabulary words and other things. And and in my book, they were kind of uh, better than Teletubbies, but lower than Barney, right? And so this is what we had in the early 2000s. Well, by 2010, the University of Washington did a study that revealed that babies exposed to baby Einstein videos actually had eight to ten less vocabulary words than their counterparts. They actually spoke less words and less terms. They were underdeveloped. And so Disney started repaying you. If you had invested in these baby Einstein videos, they would cut you a check for $15 and send it to you. And the baby Einstein experiment went the way of MySpace and Ask Jeeves. It found its way to the internet shelves to forever to be lost. And that's what happened. Go figure. Showing your kid a video didn't make them smarter. Like, I've tried variations of this for the last 14 years, and it hasn't worked, right? See, the phenomenon highlights something that I think is more true than we realize. See, the things that we are exposed to shape us. And whatever the baby Einstein thing was, it showed us that that we think this way about ourselves, too. What we're exposed to actually shapes and forms the way we think, the way we act, the way we uh, respond, the way we go about our Tuesday afternoon. It's an important thing for us to think about. The music you listen to, the movies you take in, uh, the scriptures you read, the books you read, the magazines you look at, the advertisements that you take in, all of these things form us and shape us. They form a set of expectations. They form our reality in some way. As we turn to the book of Second Peter. I think Second Peter's saying the same thing to us. See, Second Peter, Peter essentially is saying what we listen to plays a role in our spiritual state. When we hear the prophecies of God and we listen to them, we find growth and confirmation of faith. Back in chapter 1, verse 4, Peter told us that it was by the precious promises of God that we escape the corruption that's natural to us in the world. And as we turn to chapter 2, Peter wants to take a little bit different emphasis on this. He wants to say that when we listen to false words that come from false teachers, we give way to immoral character and ultimately to our own destruction and division from the body. Let me say that again. When we listen to false words and false teaching, we give way to immoral character. And that immoral character sets the foundation for us to receive judgment from God. 
So here's our big idea this morning. God will judge false teachers and deliver his faithful people. It's funny, we find that dichotomy happening all the time through the scriptures, and we'll see three examples of that in our passage this morning of how God is delivering and judging all at the same time. So God will judge and deliver, and we'll see this in verses 1 through 3. He's going to talk about the false words of false teachers. We'll kind of, kind of unpack what does a false teacher look like. This is a, a term that some of us, we, we love to throw around. We like to talk about false teachers, and it's a reality. There are false teachers among us. We're not going to name names this morning, uh, not because I'm afraid to, but because uh, there's probably more false teachers than I could name. The internet is so wide and so big, if I started to name some of them, it would be but a fraction of those false teachers that are out there this morning. And there will be new ones to come. And so what we want to talk about is not who meets the list of false teachers this morning. We want to teach you to identify what a false teacher is, not just this week, but next week as well. And so we'll talk about this false words of false teachers in verses 1 through four, one through 3, and then we'll talk about the true judgment of God in verses 4 through 10. And you can see the dichotomy. We'll talk about the false teachers in the first three verses, and then we'll get and we'll talk back, uh, we'll talk concerning the grace and glory of God in verses 4 through 10. So that being said, I want to dive in into 2 Peter chapter 2 here this morning. We're in 2 Peter chapter 2 verse 1 where Peter writes this, but false prophets also arose among the people just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of the truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words, and their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. Peter wants to talk about the false words of these false teachers. Now, before we even dive into these verses, if we want to back up to the end of chapter 1, I want to highlight something that's happening here kind of in juxtaposition. What we just talked about last week was the true words that Peter himself had heard from God, that as he saw Jesus transfigured on the Mount of Transfiguration, he heard the words from God, this is my beloved son, with him I'm well pleased, listen to him right? And then he goes on and he describes the true words of prophecy. He said, men moved by the Holy Spirit uh, spoke from God, that the Holy Spirit was using human authors to record these things that we call the scriptures that we have in front of us today. Now, by juxtaposition then, Peter is saying, no, but these false prophets are something different entirely. And so we want to talk about the reality of false teaching in, in verse 1. See, what he says there, false prophets also arose among the people. He, he's getting historical here, and he's talking about this history of the nation of Israel, that they have a history of false prophets coming from among them. If we were to go back, we could look at Deuteronomy chapter 13, where uh, God gives specific instruction in verses 1 through 5 about how to deal with a false prophet and what to do with a false teacher. We also see that there are false teachers in, in 1 Kings chapter 22, these false prophets that are kind of lining themselves up against the prophet Micaiah. Uh, Ezekiel chapter 13, God is speaking out against false prophets. Jesus himself directed some teaching at false prophets in Matthew 7. He said, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. 
See, we have a long history of God's people being infiltrated by false teachers and false prophets. And here, in places like 2 Peter 2 or, or Matthew chapter 7, we're being warned to be tuned in to the wavelengths of what God is doing. And so God's people have always dealt with this, those who speak falsehood in their midst. But second, he reminds us that there will be false teachers among us. Notice what he says in verse 1. Just as there will be false teachers among you. Now notice, he changes the reference. He's not talking about prophets. He's talking about teachers. It would seem that the context was not so much people that had a word from God, a false word from God. It's those who were manipulating and misapplying those words that had already been received, whether they were uh, letters from Paul or the Old Testament scriptures or whatever else they were. They were manipulating and twisting them to their own purpose. But a false teacher is really a reality we should anticipate we should anticipate that we're going to hear false teaching. Uh, John Calvin actually said that any teacher, no matter how dedicated they are, they're probably only 80% right at best. So even a, a well-oriented, a well-intended preacher or teacher of the word is going to be wrong sometimes. What Peter is describing here is not a well-intended teacher or preacher or pastor who occasionally gets it wrong. He's describing poorly motivated teachers who change their teaching to serve the flesh. Now, notice how he describes this as we go on in verses 1, 2, and 3. In, in 1b, he describes them uh, first and foremost that they're driven uh, to bring heresies, destructive heresies, even denying Christ. Peter says that they, they, they infiltrate these things secretly secretly. It means craftily. It might not just come from the pulpit. It might be stated in your small group. It might be uh, just a, a word that's taught even in fellowship before or after a service. Peter says that it, it can be content-oriented, that this false teaching it can deal in destructive or divisive heresies. You're saying, what in the world is a heresy? Heresy is, is uh, classically defined by the church as uh, a, a teaching, a false teaching that would actually, if, if it's followed, would lead you to be condemned before God. It's, it's denying things like God's Trinitarian nature. It's denying the nature and extent of God's atonement in Christ. It's, it's denying that Christ pays for sins and those simple kind of essential teachings. Heresy denies those things to be true. We might give another category out there, though, that the church has classically defined uh, there's heresy that's damnable teaching, and then there's aberrant teaching, teaching that doesn't overtly deny the central Christian teaching, but may be dangerously inconsistent with it. You're saying, what in all this, the world does this mean? Imagine, if you will, you had a, an original 1967 Mustang, and some of us guys are going to close our eyes and just escape into this reality, Right? You had an original 1967 Mustang. Everything was the original parts. Everything was original to the car. Now you can hear that I already don't know what I'm talking about with cars, okay? So give me some grace. But you have this 1967 Mustang and you say, you know what? I really want an MP3 player in my car. I want to be able to play my Bluetooth. I want to do that. So I'm going to swap out the stereo. No big deal, right? But then you say, you know, I don't really like the suspension either. So I'm going to replace the suspension. And... 
you know what, I think it could use some more horsepower. So I'm going to swap out the engine and I'm going to modify the frame and I'm going to do all of this other stuff. See, at what point do we no longer have a 1967 Mustang? See, the truth is that if we continue to flirt and change with the issues of Christianity, the central teachings of Christianity, the faith that's handed down once, from, once and all from the saints, then we're not really adhering to the truth of Christian teaching, are we? We've changed the Mustang, as it were. This morning, I was scrolling through some pictures. I had this picture, and I don't know where this happened, but it was this monstrosity of a car where they had just welded these pieces of different vehicles together. I thought, that is just a description of of 21st century Christianity. We've mashed together some religious teaching. We've mashed together some Eastern theology. We've mashed together some just vague spirituality kind of concepts, and we've kind of slapped a little bit of Jesus on the side of it, and we've called it Christianity. See, heretical teachers or false teachers want to deal with false notions of religion. And so one of the things that might spot them is their false teaching. In fact, Peter says that these false teachers employ this false teaching and put themselves and others at risk of destruction. And if you're kind of doing the math here as we're reading this morning, there's two times in this verse that Peter describes the destruction of these false prophets. Three times in three verses he describes it. See, it's a centerpiece of this book that a judgment is coming to those who have false words. So the first thing we can identify is that false teachers teach falsely, right? Duh. The second thing that Peter draws our attention to is not just that their content is bad. It's that their their life is bad. This is what he says in verse 2. Look at verse 2 with me. And many will follow their sensuality. And because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. See, they are marked by this sensual living. This, that word kind of typically carries a, a sexual kind of connotation to it. And it brings to, to mind all forms of indulgence and, and licentiousness. See, Peter's going to go on in chapter 2, and he'll describe this later in verse 13. He'll say that they count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. In verse 14, they have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. That They also call their hearers to this sensual living. In verse 14, that they entice unsteady souls. In verse 18, that they entice by the sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. See, these men invite you to participate in the sensuality of sin. They invite you to participate and partake in the things that are particularly not glorifying to the Lord Jesus Christ. So it's not just their teaching that's bad, it's their character that can be bad. But he goes on, and it's not just their teaching or their character. There's a motivation problem that might be involved with these false teachers. In verse 3, he he highlights this. Look, he says, and in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. So they have a a content issue. They have a character issue, and they have a motivation issue. They're looking for money. Their tool is false words. Their uh, bait, as it were, is these motivations toward the sensuality, and what they want is monetary gain in return. And so their tool is these false words to exploit us for their purposes. There's no shortage of false teachers looking to exploit you financially, are there? I love this um, 
He's a rapper, actually, and I'm not typically a fan of rap. In fact, you're about to hear the whitest moment you've ever heard in gospel community history. Uh, This is a rapper by the name of Shai Lin, and he has an album called Lyrical Theology. And this song called False Teachers, he says, it's kind of like a a pyramid scheme. Visualize heretics Christianizing the American dream. It's foul and deceitful. They're lying to people, teaching that camels squeeze through the eye of a needle. He's articulated this so well in this song. These people are motivated for their self-benefit. They manipulate the sinful inclinations of our hearts, and they twist the words of the Scriptures to get what they desire. But at the end, Peter promises that they will be judged. Look at chapter, or verse 3. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle. And their destruction is not asleep. Listen, I don't revel in this verse, and I don't revel in what this says. I don't enjoy it. But it does give us confidence, right, that the Lord is going to accomplish something that honors and glorifies himself, that he will bring true judgment to those who defy him. See, Peter returns to this idea of destruction, and their heresy leads to this destruction, and thus uh, their personal destruction is warranted. They've denied the master, they've led others into their sensual living, and they've oriented themselves to greed. And Peter intends to give us confidence that these false teachers will receive wrath from God. I might stop here in verses 1 through 3 and just take inventory of what Peter's saying to us. See, I think the underlying statement of all of this is that we're prone to this false teaching because we have a desire for sinful things at heart. See, we wouldn't be prone to these kinds of false teaching if we weren't sinners ourselves that were desiring for our itching ears to be here, desiring for our our lusts, our pleasures to be perpetuated by some kind of religious teaching. See, the tools of the false teacher only make sense to wayward souls. Because our affections and desires are misplaced, false teachers prey upon those in their teaching. Maybe just think about some of the cults, right? The biggest cult I can think of is the the Branch Davidians back in the 1990s. I remember uh, being, what, 13, 14, 15 years old and watching government agents on the roof of the Branch Davidian complex as they were about to kind of break in. And then all of a sudden a fire breaks out and you're just heartbroken for these people that are left basically dying because of uh, a misplaced faith. But as more details came out about the situation, we realized that their leader, David Koresh, was very sexually motivated. We recognized that the preachers that are on TV are always asking for more money. They promise wealth and prosperity, but only after an investment that comes from them in return, right? saw another pastor, a graduate of a very well-respected seminary in Louisville, Kentucky, who's advocating for polyamory in his, his congregation. And this is the day and age that we live in, where you and I have access to all of these teachers who are selfishly motivated, who are rewarded for big online presences. And we have these individuals that are motivated by their flesh and have infinite possibilities at selfish gain. See, we are at risk 
because we are at odds. We don't hear God's truth because our default position is rebellion against God. Like Adam and Eve, we want to become like God, not just at peace with Him. So any religious teaching that says you can be righteous and maintain our sin-centered priorities will naturally gain an audience, won't it? This is particularly powerful in our congregation or in our culture, excuse me, uh, that tends to assess something's credibility by the crowd that gathers around it. So we're exposed. We are particularly exposed to false teaching in our day and age, aren't we? Through these little rectangles that we keep in our pockets. There's constant YouTube videos. What's the, uh, you know, the, the, the requirement for you to have a YouTube account? That you have an email address? There's constant bombardment with teaching that's available to you. And we are at risk. We're at risk for the deceptive, hollow philosophies of this world. But here's the truth. This isn't all that Peter has to say to us this morning. And I think as we continue on into verses 4 through 10, we might find some confidence in a God who saves his people even in the midst of rampant false teaching. Even in the midst of his own judgment, he brings deliverance to his own. And so when we look at verses 4 through 10a, we see the true judgment of God. Read with me there what Brian has already read for us this morning in verse 4. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, If he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, and if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. See, where Peter starts off with is he starts to say that God judges and delivers. And he starts off with this statements of what seems like judgment to us, right? Peter uses this if-then statement. He starts in verse 4, and he says, if God... And then when we get down to verse 9, we see a then, right? So Peter's making one large statement in about five verses. And we kind of want to just clue ourselves in to what exactly he's seeking to accomplish. For if God, and then he gives these three examples. The first example is that of fallen angels from Genesis chapter 6. You're saying that's a part of Bible history that I'm unfamiliar with, right? Well, there's this story that happens where uh, seemingly um, the sons of God, which many interpreters believe are angels, they're actually sleeping with human women and creating progeny that are called the Nephilim. And this is how all kinds of crazy things happen in the Old Testament. But uh, 
Apparently, what Peter is saying here is that God did not spare these angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness. So God is judging these angels. The second example he gives in verse 5 is that of the flood. Here, Peter records for us a, a judgment and a deliverance, right? God did not spare the ancient world in verse 5. He brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. And notice just here that the scope of God's justice is worldwide. There is no one who escapes the justice of God in this later story in Genesis chapter 6. But it's also one of preservation of his people. God also saves. God preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others. God brings deliverance to these eight people, not because of their righteousness, but because they found favor in God's sight. So God's judging and delivering. Then he gets us to the story of of Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis 17. Excuse me, Genesis 19. Sodom and Gomorrah is the story of of Lot, the the nephew of Abraham. And uh, Lot takes up residence in the city of Sodom. And these two angels of the Lord come into the city and and Lot's kind of anxious. And he takes them into his household. And and these men of the city are literally about beating down his door because they want to take advantage of these two men. They want to abuse them sexually. And again, Peter highlights that that God judges wickedness. He he turned the city to ashes and he condemned them to extinction, but God delivers his faithful servant, Lot. See, God rescues and punishes all at once. God brings justice and deliverance at the same time. And it kind of culminates to the statement in verse 9, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. Just as Peter promised in verse 3, God will keep the wicked under punishment until their final destruction. And meanwhile, God is also going to finally and fully deliver his own people. See, what we take away from this, as we kind of pull away from this text, as we kind of just take in the inventory of what God is saying to us in 2 Peter chapter 2, is that God delivers his own. God's the one who's saving his own people, and he's delivering them even from false teaching and corruption that happens. Right? He's delivering Moses from the unrighteousness that's happening in his era. He's delivering Lot from the unrighteousness and the wickedness that's happening in his era. See, the Lord rescues those who trust him. We've read the Bible so many times, and often I've lost this fact that the Bible describes that Jesus was raised from the dead by the Father. See, if Jesus, uh, if, if God is the one who rescues his faithful servants, Jesus is the first faithful servant that he's rescued. Just a, a survey reading of the book of Acts has these statements to it, right? In Acts chapter 2, verse 32, this Jesus God raised up. In Acts chapter 3, verse 15, 
uh, whom God raised from the dead. In Acts chapter 4, verse 10, by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead. In Acts chapter 10, but God raised him on the third day. In Acts chapter 13, but God raised him from the dead. In Acts chapter 17, uh, by raising him from the dead. See, God is constantly pictured in the book of Acts as the one who's raising the Son to new life. And as Jesus went into the belly of death, as he took on our sinful payment at Calvary and went into the grave, he was raised up by being delivered by his own Father. He delivers us as he's delivered Christ. Your confidence this morning is not in your ability to ascertain false teaching. Your confidence this morning is not in how wise you are and how how capable you are of sniffing out heresy. Your confidence this morning is in a risen Jesus Christ who was the first one delivered by God's goodness and grace. In the same way, you and I can be delivered. We don't need a heresy hunt. We need Christ. See, if our sin makes makes false teaching attractive to us, redemption in Christ undoes the trap. It reorients us to a new way of living. It removes the heart of stone. It replaces it with a heart of flesh. We're no longer given to our flesh-driven priorities. Instead, we are redeemed, renewed, made new in Jesus Christ. Think about these statements from the New Testament. Romans chapter 6. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Galatians, or excuse me, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. The life of Jesus gives us new life, new priorities, new passions, new desires. And if we were drawn to false teaching because of our sinfulness, the antidote to that false teaching is Jesus with that in mind, as we start talking about false teachers and, and how we're to kind of interact with false teachers, I want to give us two priorities as the people of God. Because what Peter tells us here isn't just to be aware of false teachers, it's also to be aware of God's saving priority in Christ. See, the Christian is to be grace-confident and word stringent. We are to be grace confident and word stringent. Let's talk about this idea of being word stringent. We, Christian, are to have a narrow gate when it comes to the teachers we listen to. Can I just encourage you to think that way? You are to have a high standard for the teaching that you take in. I'm just going to tell you, Christian, limit the voices. Limit the voices that you're inviting into your stereo, into your ears. Limit the the articles that you're reading. Limit the books to uh, orthodox people who have lives that match the theology that they teach. Now, we live in an era that is willing to dismiss biblically faithful men based upon their politics 
There's a danger today that we might use the Bible to only affirm our previously held political assumptions. And here's the danger of that. The danger is that we would never be exposed to a Christian faith that wants to turn over tables in our own hearts and minds, right? We can so gather a group of teachers around us that affirm the priorities that we already hold, that we never take on any new thing. We never shape and refine our character. Encouragement here is to judge a tree by its fruit. Faithful biblical preachers and teachers will confront you because you still have sin in your heart. On the whole, if you haven't come, or if you haven't gone a year without some kind of biblical confrontation, some type of turning over tables in your heart and mind, maybe that's a sign that you're surrounding yourselves with teachers that only affirm the things that you value. See, the Christian is meant to have confidence that God will save his people. So we're called to be word stringent. We're also called to be grace-oriented. Isn't that what Peter's saying here in these verses 4 through 10? He's saying it in verse 9 with such clarity. The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. He knows how to save you. He knows how to deliver you from the thing that you feel like is most pressing. What is there that God is going to deny you that you need? What is there that his people are going to be lacking Are you concerned right now about a virus? Are you concerned right now about vaccines? Are you concerned about masks? Are you concerned about uh, ideas and thoughts in the academy? Are you concerned about the, the trends in Hollywood? Are you concerned about all of those things? Because what is there that your God is not going to supply for you for you to live faithfully in this earth? What is there that God has not already provided you in Christ that you're lacking? See, the Christian is meant to have confidence that God will save his people. Despite the host of false teachers that surround us, God will deliver fully and finally. He'll deliver us. Christian, you don't need to wring your hands in fear. Yes, there are false teachers around the world. Yes, the enemy wants to deceive. Yes, your sinful heart still beats strong in your chest. But the God of grace has pursued you in Christ. And what he starts, he finishes. Take heart. Have joy. When Christ was raised from the dead and you were raised with him, What's there to stop it? If God wants to bring salvation to you, what is there that will stop that from happening? Can I give you a bit of advice? In this season of difficulty and hardship, when we feel like there's so many false teachers around us, when we feel like like the political ideologies are swelling, when we feel like the pressures are mounting, can I just give you this piece of advice? Be content to know one thing, Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2. He went into the city of Corinth, a, a city marked by sexual dysfunction and idolatry and political overturn and everything else that you can imagine. He goes into the city, and the thing that he wants to focus on is Jesus Christ and him crucified. 
In an age when the ideas and perspectives seem to come faster than we can understand them, we need to be people of the cross. And when we get the cross right, it's really hard to get the other parts wrong. Let's have confidence that what God has accomplishing in the cross is the thing that matters most. Amen? I want to pray to that end. I pray that God makes us people that have confidence in the cross of Christ. That we can see through the, the various sordid kind of issues that press on us. We can have confidence that God is the one who will fully and finally deliver his people. Let's pray together. Lord, we, we ask that very thing right now. For my, my own heart included, I, I, I recognize that my tendency is to go scatterbrained, to think about all of the different pressures and all of the different mounting arguments and everything else that is happening and to get lost in the weeds. But Lord, pull us back to the centrality of Jesus Christ. His full and final payment at the cross. A confidence that you will deliver us in the end. Lift our eyes toward you. Remind us of your work in the world, that you are moving all things to bringing us into your presence. Lord, I pray that you would work this to your glory and honor. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.